Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. Nine years ago, the Ten Cities Project brought together European and African music producers in collaborations. Now, the project has extended to a new book that takes a look into the history of the clubbing scenes of Ten Cities in Europe and Africa. In this episode, we talked to journalist Florian Sievers, one of the editors of the book, about how looking into African capitals redefines the geographies of clubbing, as well as the diverse and intense history of the city of Berlin. We are then joined by Sona Tull, author of an essay on Johannesburg in the book, to talk about the impact of racial segregation on the South African capital's clubbing history. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on movement radio. I am Jan Soreswa Dimitriou, recording and editing by Stefanos Kostadinidis. Florian Sievers, welcome to the Archipelago. Thank you. So, uh, I'd like to start by telling our listeners how did the, the concept of 10 cities come to be and how it evolved into a book. Yes, there was a there was a forerunner project that was called BLNRB or NRBLN, and those letters um, are the abbreviation for Nairobi and Berlin. So that was a bilateral cooperation project uh, between electronic music producers from those two cities, and that was in 2010, and it was set up by the initiator of the project, Johannes Hosfeld, who was the director of Goethe Institute in Nairobi back then, and he is it again now. And uh, afterwards, Johannes um, um, had a, the idea to expand the project on 10 cities, uh, a similar project, and expand it on 10 cities. And um, that was exactly the time when I met him I, uh, in a club in Berlin. We got introduced through mutual friends. And then we started uh, a discussion about this. I mean, first he invited me to uh, Nairobi for the BLNRB project, and I w- w- wrote about it as a journalist. And um, then we got into this discussion about expanding it and um, yeah we got the idea to um, to do a compilation which is a practical part a music recording and a, a theoretical part which is the book and both of those products are out now the compilation has been released in 2014 and the book just now 
there's a, there's a long gap between the, the compilation and the book, right? Yes, that was due to the to the fact that um, that we uh, have a rather rigid uh, structure in the book, which is two authors for every city, and um, and uh, they analyze their own city from two different perspectives. And we couldn't kick out any authors that didn't deliver their text first. That was a problem. So we had to drag everybody through the deadline and or deadline after deadline. And, and then there were also some some uh, serious revolutions. You might remember Tahrir Square in Cairo and the Maidan revolution in Kiev. And both are, are cities that are part of the book. And I mean, of course, both, both um, events delayed um, the, the the deliverance of the text by the authors. So there were several factors. It was quite complicated. And I mean, there was a lot of research necessary for all the writers, the contri- contributors, because most of these topics has, have never been written about. So they had to do a lot of research. And yeah, that kind of um, kind of thrashed our idea, the, our initial idea to release the book and the compilation together. Uh, the mu- musicians were much faster than the writers. Yeah, I, I noticed that in the book. The, the bibliography is kind of uh, scarce. It's, uh, it's very few and far <laughs> between you know <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> okay so th- tell me about these 10 cities i mean is it, it was the choice random or do they represent a uh, european and african clubbing culture uh, in in hall um, it was not random, but it was not um, kind of a selection that we would like to be understood as a best of or representative selection. Rather, we kind of uh, try to um, spread um, the cities, so kind of you know, like check in different cultural spheres. But it was also sometimes just organizational questions that led us to certain cities. Because it's uh, Ten Cities is a is a good uh, institute project. We relied on the the Goethe Institute infrastructure, which is fantastic. It's the Foreign German Cultural Institute. And we wanted to find Goethe Institute, local Goethe Institute directors in cities that understood the project and uh, and fully wanted to support it first. And also, we worked always with local curators, so we kind of uh, relied on a network of recommendations of recommendations where people recommended us their contacts and said, this is a nice guy or a nice girl and you should walk, work with them. So it kind of was a between like a kind of a a strategic setting but it was also just an organizational uh, process and in the end we came out with these 10 cities that are just 10 examples but not the, like the best cities or the you like the whatever um, there's no chart or no 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 ranking involved here mm-hmm. so uh, picking the writers of the books it was just through recommendation that's what uh, brought them together it was yes it was. And we 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 went to the cities and we kind of set up small conferences there or gatherings of writers, people interested, because the the good institutes always have a sphere of interesting people revolving around them, doing projects there, being connected to the institute. I mean, if if they work well with their with their with their local cultural scenes, and we asked the institutes, can you just like invite people that are interesting, and we got into discussions. I mean, sometimes we immediately identified who would be able to contribute to the book and sometimes you know like somebody recommended us a writer and uh, and and then we got into contact and, and got into a discussion it was it was um it was absolutely necessary that i mean of course these writers were reliable and could could like work in the way that we imagined but it was also we wanted to find people that are able to step out of their own cultural sphere and explain their scenes to other people from you know, like from other 
continents. So you must really work in a way that people understand you that are not from the same city or the same cultural background as you are. So that was that was a, a, the main the main um, qualification they had apart from you, know, like of course their their usual qualifications. So when you saw the the final product of the book, all these writings come together. Do you think that after yes. the fact you could say that these thinkers and writers are kind of similar? No, they are not similar because we all. I mean, the whole project is about similarities and differences between cultures and cities, and and of course individual contributors. And um, no, they're they're quite quite different from each other, and that's something that we really wanted. Um, some of these people are journalists, like music journalists, like myself. Some of them are academics. Some are urbanists or sociologists. So each of them has a very different approach, or has had a very different approach to their essay. And that's uh, some of the the good things of the book is that we think that they're quite different from each other. I mean, we had a we set up a conference in 2014 at Lake Naivasha, which is a it's a place uh, about 100 kilometers from Nairobi, I think, and um, gathered all the contributors there and and discussed the framework of you know, like of you know, like what what we want to achieve with the book and like just basic standards that we really want each text to to follow. But apart from that, we really appreciated their different approaches to give readers a fully three-dimensional pictures of how different club cultures can be and the approaches to that as well. <laughs> and, and how do you, I mean, it sounds like a, a pedestrian question a bit, but how do you define clubbing? What kind of activity is clubbing? Is it the dance? Is it the music? Is it the spaces? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. It's um, we think that um, I mean we have a very broad def- definition. It's it's about like nocturnal a- activities connected with music, and uh, it doesn't necessarily have to involve dancing, but most of the times it should. Um, but um, we think of it as much more than that. I mean, it's not just people gathering in clubs, uh, listening to music, maybe drinking alcohol or not, depending on their belief or whatever. But it's more that we think that clubbing is also a really um, a, a kind of a parallel society to 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 night li- to day life. I mean, the nightlife is something. It's like a laboratory where people can try out different things and where a society can you know, like experiment with avant-gardistic developments that are later re um, re imported into the mainstream society and change this society. So that you know, like sometimes. I mean, of course, laws are always not as strict at, at night, and you know, like our morals and all these things they loosen up a bit when people meet at night, and that's something that's really interesting where 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 a society can really like you know, like change in a way so it's it's much more than just dancing and drinking and music but i mean of course these are the basic components maybe not drinking always but dancing and music mm-hmm. yeah but it seems uh, what's fascinating about the book is that we tend to associate clubbing one of the things that's, that are fascinating about the book uh, is that we associate clubbing with usually with electronic music only although we find there were perfectly you know analog uh, you know predecessors <laughs> to uh, to electronic music uh, why, why why don't we tend to think of some place today for example uh, where you can hear analog music as a club why do we think it's something different from where you hear the electronic <laughs> yeah I I mean that's of course a part of the paradigm that we live in at the moment that of course all club music i mean all music that you're listening to is more or less electronic music but of course club music is aesthetically also electronic music most of the times but of course i mean the idea of techno clubs house clubs uh, in the late 1980s or early 1990s didn't come out of nowhere i mean there have been discotheques before that where people played records that have been actually played by by an orchestra or a band so um it doesn't there 
yes, there was of course a break in like where everything became digital, but the idea of of dancing to music in a certain space at night or sometimes even at, at daytime is not hasn't completely come out of the blue sky. So it's it's just that today we think club music is necessarily uh, house and techno music, and of course, I mean people who don't like house and techno or other electronic musics, they would always still go out and listen to other kind of music. I mean they have also rock rock clubs in in Berlin, for example, or jazz clubs. Still, I mean, jazz is maybe hasn't is not so much a dancing music anymore. But you know, so it's we don't think that um, club music is necessarily only certain types of genres. I mean, of course, and also uh, our book starts the, the essays in our book start in the 1960s, and there hasn't been any electronic music or almost any electronic music apart from some avant-gardists in Germany and Britain and the US um, that did like proper aesthetically electronic music. So and you, cert- to start. And so, you certainly yeah. couldn't dance to them. <laughs> yeah, you certainly couldn't dance to them. That's a good point, yeah. So the, the, the way you tried to describe this was, uh, I mean, I'm really interested in the structure of the book where you, you juxtapose uh, musical histories with uh, political histories uh, to, to tell the full, uh, to give the full fi- picture of it. Uh, could you explain the structure a bit to us, how, how you came to this uh, decision? Yeah, I mean, we, we think of clubbing, of going out at night and and, and, and and going to certain spaces at night as an inherently um, political activity. <clears throat> so, um, as I said earlier, because it's kind of avant-garde, avant-gardistic laboratories uh, for societies. So, we thought that um, looking at clubbing as uh, uh, to analyze societies is like looking at a prison uh, and like like a, like a prism that you know kind of divides the different um, wavelengths of, of 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 light, so you can see more. And so it's kind of looking through this prism, and 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 analyze and have a look at the societies and what they imagined to be like, and what they what what's what's forbidden, what is allowed, what are morals, what are taboos, all these things. You can always see that in nightlife. So it's really like a like a political activity um, when you when you go out and gather with other people, even though you might just think it's just having fun. But I mean, even having fun in itself. How do you have fun? You know, like, what is what? What is what can you do? What can you not do? And all these things. That's that's a real political thing for us. <laughs> and the relations often. I mean, it's quite direct sometimes. Uh, the book starts with I'm thinking about the the Nairobi case, uh, where it, it literally starts with uh, the parties that uh, uh, people in Nairobi had the na- the day that uh, you know uh, British <laughs> colonialism uh, went away in uh, 1963. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. So you, you find this as a pattern that there is a kind of, a, let's say, that a hedonism uh, has worked in, um, can be, has been combined with emancipatory politics in, in a sense. <laughs> you, you find this uh, everywhere in the cities you, uh, you studied. Even uh, that's 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 absolutely correct uh, uh, that you've noticed that, and that's also one of the reasons why we thought the 1960s is a good starting point. Um, I mean, we could have started in the 1920s uh, as well, but I mean, apart from that being a huge, uh, even bigger task, I mean, the 1960s is uh, is in the African societies as well as in the European societies is like a turning point. Um, the African societies, most of them started to become. I mean, the countries became independent, whereas in Europe and many in many cities or many societies there were uh, like turmoils and revolutions by students and you know, like the society really changed as well so that's an interesting parallel and they were both of course both developments were connected to each other and so we thought this is a good starting point where you know like something changed in society so let's start here and look where it goes from there 
<laughs> and, and I have this question now: Why do you pick cities instead of nations? Because um, it's impossible to analyze uh, uh, whole nations. I mean, even cities is on the border of like being serious about it. I mean, people who would talk about let's say nigerian music or uh, or portuguese music or let's say greek music i mean they just some some you know, like putting together so many different styles and it gets even more crazy when people use the term african music i mean that's a, that's such a huge continent i mean even more diverse than europe and people have no idea how how different and and and, and contradictory sometimes these cultures are so you have to focus in and zoom in on a point and we thought cities are at least a handable size i mean you should maybe get even more concrete and just analyze scenes or something like or, or, or parts of cities or whatever but i mean we thought this is something that we could work with and it's still you know it's still mm, big enough to contain different different cultures but it's small enough to you know like give us a, a serious starting point now the the starting point for your text was actually berlin <laughs> uh, I, i don't know what your relation is you've lived there or you've been born there um how long have you stayed in berlin Yes, uh, I moved to Berlin twenty uh, years ago now. Um, so for um, for original Berliners, I'm not a rig- an original Berliner. I mean, you you never become one to the original Berliners. But I've lived here um, almost on uh, almost half of my life. Sp- I've spent here. Um, so I have um, I have a, an, I mean quite an in- intimate relationship with the city. But still, I don't feel like a a real Berliner. You know, it's I don't identify myself as a Berliner. Or you know, like whatever. So it's, but I, I mean, I've, I've stayed quite a while in the city. Could we say that what I got from your text was that um, it seems like cultural uh, paradigms, uh, paradigms in Berlin kind of alternate between hedonism and nihilism. We we see this coming back uh, back and forth, you know, <laughs> again and again. Uh, why is that? <laughs> That's a very nice point. Yeah, sometimes even both of them together. Yeah. Um, so it's hedonistic nihilism. Uh, um, I guess it's it's because of this. I mean, uh, of course, it starts in the in the, the my text starts in the 1960s. But I mean, even in the 1920s, when there were it was in Berlin called the Roaring Twenties. I think in other places as well, um, there was so much you know, like. Um, tension politically and there was such a, a special situation in the city and that was of course the case in the 1960s as well when you had the cold war and it was a city that was surrounded by kind of enemy territory and it was walled in and fenced in and like an island where people would live and it's kind of a complete um, exception to german society and it was still run down and damaged and derelict by the war you could really see that still in the 1960s so it started with this with this devastating situation uh, but you had also had a lot of free space there and you it was quite cheap to live in Berlin and you didn't have to do military service so people really got into um, hedonism and just having fun just like they did in the last 20 years in Berlin or in the last I mean you know all these stories about Berlin is party capital that's not a new thing actually um, And and the nihilism part is also because I mean people always had the or often had the ideas in the 60s or in the 80s again that you know like the end of the world is near you know um, atomic weapons were going to kill us all and everything so we j- j- let's just party like it's the last night of, of, of our life and so kind of um, it's it might also have to do with I don't know I'm always critical of of you know, like summarizing whole nations or societies with a certain cultural character characteristics but I mean there might be something into the german soul that it's always like 
dramatic and you know, like and 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 very harsh and 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 you know, like extremist in in a way. I'm not sure about that, but I mean, I I I, I sure know that this the city has gone through different phases where you know, like it it kind of oscillated between everything is possible and the end is near. So that's my, something quite special to to Berlin, I guess. I I also think that I just thought of this that it kind of reminds me. It might be that this nationalism can also come from Berlin's history pretty early on. I mean, I'm thinking of this famous silent film, uh, Berlin, uh, that was in the 20s. I think it was, we see there, uh, you know, a booming metropolis. Like, that's um, uh, that's very innovative, very modernist. Very, and then we have spent the rest of the 20th century, most of the 20th century of Berlin being in ruins. Do you think that has actually, uh, that weighs in into the story of the city and the perception of the, the culture being created in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean like something like a like a disappointment because the Berlin wanted to become really big and then it didn't really because it was all bombed out and damaged by the war. Or what, what, yeah, what yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's definitely uh, that's definitely a point. I mean, and then also, I mean. Mm, I'm, I'm kind of speculating here, but I mean, compared to Paris or, or London, the other huge uh, capitals in, in, in Europe, uh, or of course Madrid as well, in that they were all centers of empires. And Berlin, actually, I mean, apart from the National Socialism, which was a huge empire, but I mean, it was near, never a, a multicultural empire where so many influences got in. So it have, has this, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a really weird situation that where you have like blanks that are not occupied or where people are not or have for a long time not been used so much to foreign influences and only had to open up uh, you know, like after the fall of the wall and all these things so it's a very you know of course a very special situation mm -hmm. you know uh, what amazed me from uh, what amazed me from the story you told about berlin was how diverse it is stylistically i mean uh, you see all these different styles that come out of it and they're all uh, they don't look like one another at all you know uh, in the uh, why is that why where does this pluralism come for, come from Yeah, my, my thesis in the, or my my yeah my, my theory in the in the text is that because Berlin has so much space, uh, also as 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 a result of the war and so many things got you know, like got um, bombed into ruins and there was a blank space that you could fill, so every subculture could find their own niche and not get in touch, didn't have to get in touch with with the others and could just do their own thing. So um, that's kind of a and there was enough space for that and was not so expensive. So many different subcultures came to Berlin and started to do their own thing. And I mean, people must not forget, I mean, when you say, for example, there's this, this expression about the Berlin School of Synthesizer music, like Tangerine Dream and, and all these uh, the, 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 these other crowds, cosmic music uh, guys. Yeah, those guys. Um, um, they were just a very, very small scene for, for you know, like some avant-gardists, but there were always other scenes as well. I mean, like blues, blues and jazz and, and whatever. I mean, in the even in the 80s, there was a huge um, funk and soul scene due to the to, due to the GIs, the American GIs, being stationed in Berlin. So they had their own clubs. I mean, in other places in in, in Germany, even more so. So there was always a huge diversity. Uh, but I guess I mean that's something that 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 applies to other cities as well. I mean, they might not be have so much space and and so much space in an industrialized country that has a bit of money. Um, maybe it's that combination as well. But I mean, other cities always also have other music scenes are uh, different music scenes you know, like i guess in, in athens you also have a metal scene and you also have a hip-hop scene and they don't you know, like they don't do a lot with each other i mean they don't interact with each other not at all probably <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you, you start your, your piece with, uh, and, and this seems kind of strange to me, with Geniale Dilettanten, which is, uh, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Uh, yes, yes, that was good. <laughs> yeah, which was like this uh, very experimental industrial, uh, kind of industrial, very noisy, uh, very avant-garde uh, movement. Uh, but I'm thinking, why, why would you pick this when, you know, you had this, uh, uh, some prominent figures of this scene, you even mentioned that they were against the clubbing that stemmed uh, after this. I mean, I would think that the, such a story would start with maybe, I don't know, DAF or something. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it kind of seems strange to me because Genial Dilettanta, we think of it as being something that was outside the history of clubbing in Berlin. How do you, how do you relate it to, to the story? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 well, one of the reasons was because I tried to find or to show that there are uh, traditions and uh, and the same people resurfacing uh, over the course of history from time to time. So it's, I mean, you can find um, um, somebody um, um, like, um, for example, um, Manuel Goethe. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, he, he he resurfaced. I mean, he did this these things like these cosmic music, cosmic music things. But I mean, he also produced some of the of the post punk bands in the 1980s again. So it's really funny to because not many people know that. And uh, and talking about geniale dilettanten, it was also that I mean, of course, many of them there were punks at heart, and they kind of re would would have rejected dancing in a club, you know, and and you know, like having fun there. Uh, but I mean, on the other hand, I mean. Berlin techno was also from the beginning a very political thing with a connection to Detroit and these, these African-American artists and underground resistance and their political stance. So it was kind of, a, I think it, it, it's an ongoing tradition that some people didn't want to see or didn't want to be part of. But I mean, I still feel that there's a, there's a tradition, even with the with a Tangerine Dream and the, the synthesizer music. Um, my co, uh, the other author from, from Berlin Tobias uh, up, he says that the, the, this music hasn't, it wasn't danceable at all, so it doesn't have to do anything with club music. But I have the argument that um, this music was electronically produced, and it showed that it is done by synthesizers and machines. So it has the basics, the same idea as as techno, and before that, I mean, already in the 1970s. So it kind of maybe even unintentionally laid some groundworks for what could be thinkable of as music and how could you present yourselves. Remember Klaus Schulze sitting in front of his synthesizers with an astronaut's helmet, like a like a machine engineer. I mean, that's a that's a real really a techno thing, like a 99. Chinese techno thing to do, so there was a there were there were connections. None of these developments were um, were completely cut off from from each other. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I'm, not, I'm thinking that the the famous Detroit Berlin pathway, as as it's often called, uh, yeah. could, could be traced back to what you mentioned earlier with the you know the American GIs being there. Did this build a, um, a relationship between the U.S. and uh, Germany that evolved into uh, into this affinity that they share? Yeah, that was one of the reasons. But and, and another was that, of course, Berlin and Detroit were both cities that were have been affected by history. I mean, one by the war, the other one by degentrification and total rundown and and breakdown of the of the inner city in, in Detroit. And and um, I mean, they, they often goes the saying when the when the Berliners first visited Detroit, they kind of kind of felt at home because they saw all these blank spaces where you could set up illegal clubs and everything. And and the other way around. I mean, when the when the Detroit uh, musicians came to Berlin in the in the very early 1990s or I think even at the end of the 1980s they uh, they they had the same the same feeling that this is like a like like a 
broken city where you could where, you, where there's many openings where you could like do things so there's this relationship as well mm-hmm. now in the 1990s when the the, the reunification happens uh, that's when the, the pretty much the techno scene uh, starts in Berlin and uh, tell us how it became the definitive sound of the city over time Yeah, I mean the, the the happening of this techno scene and the the, the fall of the wall was a, like a like a lucky coincidence to, to 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 put it this way because I mean there was a maybe a one or two years advanced that uh, electronic music in the form of acid techno had arrived in Berlin before the wall came down and I mean when it when it really started to to explode I mean the wall fell and I mean there was even more space unoccupied space to found to be found on the other side of the of the wall in the eastern parts of the city and as well uh, from the, the audience from the eastern parts really quickly got into this kind of music so kind of coincidentally um, techno became this reunification music um, music for for a huge scene in, in Berlin of course not for all people and not or, or even not for all young people but I mean there was a huge scene and there was like an ideal place and 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 time and uh, I think I mean mainly by coincidence and um, and and kind of it, 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 it evolved from there I mean combined with a very liberal stance that was always part of Berlin's culture I mean it, even in the, in the of course uh, back to the 1920s Berlin was a place of you know, like laissez-faire where you could just go out and have fun with each other, even queer people and take drugs and all this. I mean, this is also nothing new to Berlin. Uh, and and then it kind of you know, like it, it got really big. I mean, in the in the 1990s um, in Berlin, but still was you know, like kept by itself. I mean, there were not too many um, expats or foreigners or people from other cities visiting Berlin for partying. And then came another ingredient, which was the very cheap flights. Um, I mean, my uh, the the other author author for for Berlin, Tobias Rapp, has this book, e, uh, "Lost and Sound: Berlin and the Easy uh, Jet Set." I, I, that's not the exact subtitle, but you know what? It's the Easy Jet Set, where where people could travel between cities just to party for a weekend. And I mean, that's that was the point when there was another another level of, of development for, for, for electronic music in Berlin when it was really, really big and still, I mean, uh, just until the until the, the end of the, the development or the, maybe not the complete end, but the break for this development during the current pandemic, that was, a, that, was, that was a curve that was always growing and rising. I mean, more people, bigger clubs, uh, more interest, higher prices for Berliners, you know, and, and this has paused now where we will see what it's going to be like after the after the pandemic is over hopefully <laughs> yeah but still uh, what you're talking about now is uh, you know something that's growing in numbers uh, essentially although the, you know stylistically um, uh, you might say that I, I think that you even say it in one point in your, in your piece that the minimal techno style which we associated with Berlin in the previous decade or the decade before that one actually <laughs> it's, yeah. it's two decades ago now yeah so yeah that style was a kind of became stale at some point uh what, what was the effect that minimal techno had on the city <laughs> it completely became stale i mean of course you have to mention other cities as well for for minimal techno and artists from detroit as well like rob hood who kind of invented this whole or jeff mills and and there, of course there was a huge uh, minimal de- development from cologne with compact records but in berlin of course it, it got really big and uh, with the with these with these clubs but 25, bar 25, and and of course the Berghain or the, the forerunner Oskut already, and it kind of became its own cliche after a while because this this reduction to minimalism got so 
reduced to more and more just you know, like the same tropes that people would use over and over again and just for partying that became really really boring and i mean of me as well i mean i got so bored that i started to to look somewhere else for for musical inspirations which i found actually in, in different musical cultures and on the african continent and other people started the same thing so it maybe was just a uh, you know, like it was a necessary uh, slowing down aesthetically, or I don't want to s- put it in terms of development, but it was a, it was a, it was a, a style that got to its end. Uh, you know, like it, it was, it wasn't interesting to to work on this anymore, and um, and um, th- that was a, an interesting point that uh, that then so many people from other cities came to Berlin because they really started to try different kind of music. Uh, uh, approach musical approaches with their music. So we, we like all these people from from the U.S. or from Spain or that live in Berlin or from France. Um, they they they're working on on aesthetically different stuff. And I'm I'm actually especially thinking about all the queer electronic music that has come up in the recent years and that was really like broken down, maximalist, very digitalized aesthetics, which is really interesting. I mean that makes as broad as that term is, uh, but in Berlin, really interesting again was the influences from the outside that kind of revived the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'll ask you one last thing before we bring Sean in. Uh, the, I mm-hmm. first went to Berlin in 2007 and I, I found the landscape, you know, the, the urban landscape amazing. Uh, I even visited Berg, Bergheim, I did the whole thing. Uh, then I, it was almost a, dec- a decade until I went back and I found the city being pretty much destroyed by, <laughs> being destroyed rapidly by gentrification, you know, people being kicked out of their homes, uh, uh, historical uh, spaces that produced culture being shut down and everything. Uh, do you think there's a future for creative force to Ber- in Berlin to keep going? Well, that's a, that's a big question because, I mean, it's hard to, to, to judge this uh, with regards to the current lockdown and what it's going to be like after the lockdown has hopefully once been lifted. I mean, we know that all this, the clubs are suffering in Berlin, and um, and 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 may, many will not. I guess many will not open again, as it is the, the case, of course, in other cities or many other cities as well. Um, so I'm, it's it's hard to 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 answer this question. Um, mm, I'm I'm always hopeful um, that we that we are, there will always be like f- spaces and everything and and. Um, it's interesting that the Berlin city marketing, I mean, the, the the official marketing of the city as for tourists has, before the lockdown, I think was maybe, I guess, two or three years earlier, had recognized uh, electronic music and nightlife as, a, as an important factor for the city. But I'm not sure if that is a good thing or a bad thing, because, I mean, of course, electronic music and, and clubbing and all, all these things have always been underground cultures or should. I mean, they're most interesting when they when they are opposed to the official society. And you like, as I said earlier, yeah, they are this kind of counter society or avant-gardist uh, laboratories and when the official culture embraces this it might also suffocate the development so I'm not sure I mean if, if that's going to help clubs to reopen and re-establish the lively landscape we had before the pandemic but I'm I'm hopeful that many like there will be places there, there will be found and as for gentrification it's I mean it's a tricky thing I mean 
all of the people you know that move to Berlin personally, I mean, they're always very nice people and they just intend the best. And I did the same thing, of course, in other cities as well. Um, so you go there, you want to like have a life as an artist there and you come from a different background. But I mean, involuntarily, un you always add to the gentrification by paying higher rents and, you know, just like trying to establish your own lifestyle and, and, and all these things. So that I mean, but I guess that's just a part of a normal development in cities. They're always changing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have to say that in Berlin, many people are people are really worried that uh, it will just be another you know, like boring uh, official city, like you know, like, like other cities as well, where you don't find free spaces, where the laws are strict, you know, and, and there's no there's no freedom anymore. But we will see. I mean, I guess uh, the, the 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 Berliners are uh, you know, like stubborn enough to always find something. I hope. So at this point, uh, Sonatul, welcome to Archipelago. Thank you. Uh, now, take us to your relationship to Johannesburg, because all the authors in the book are writing from a personal experience. I was born and grew up in Pretoria, which is about 60 kilometers from Johannesburg. Um, I suppose it's a bit like many twin cities in the world, uh, where they have strange relationships. Um, I suppose like Detroit and you know, Richmond and that. <laughs> um, so I, I studied at, uh, in Johannesburg and I also lived there for a period. Um, I'm currently in Cape Town though. So, but, um, you know, Johannesburg loomed large in my imagination. Um, I remember when I was cleaning up one day, I found an essay um, that I wrote while still in school about how Johannesburg was just very different from where I grew up. And I, I suppose partly that was because um, as a city, it's a commercial hub and it imports not only objects, but ideas. And it's um, very much part of its, I, I suppose, very short history. You know, Johannesburg was it's one of those um, instant coffee cities. It was founded in 1886. Um, and the essay that I've worked on picks up more or less halfway into its history. Uh, but being a very masculine city, I'm, I'm sort of jumping around a little bit. Um, it was a city of enterprise and trade. The idea particularly of entertainment exists right from the beginning of um, the city in, 18, in the 1880s. If one looks at the kind of early history of Johannesburg, it's not only a place of kind of acquisitive hypercapitalism. Um, it's also a place of pleasure. Um, and with that drinking, dancing, all the things that pleasure involves. Uh, vaudeville was very big there in the early days. Um, jazz came very quickly and went through many mutations um, to, and, and still kind of informed the city's history. But anyway, that's uh, Johannesburg, as I understand. <laughs> it's funny that they, just, they tell the story, because it, what reminded me of the way you describe it in your piece is uh, uh, it sounds like a Kind of like pre-war Hollywood, you know, with the uh, drifters, get-rich-quick seems, uh, segregation, and, and entertainment. Uh, how did this, uh, you know, how did this affect cultural innovation there? I think, you know, the get-rich um, idea is fundamental to the, the city. Um, so it's even someone who would claim to be a Johannesburger 
would not have a long history there. And so it's both a very kind of um, a city of ruthless people. Um, and it's also the fact that, you know, I think what's important to the history of Johannesburg is this idea of it being a kind of surrogate home. Um, people come to make money. And what is typical, even now, even in the pandemic, there's a great exodus in December. People go home. Um, and that kind of, let's say, attitude figures in the way people behave there. It's exuberant. It's over the top. Um, I suppose partly because there's not the responsibilities or the sobrieties that come with being in your hometown. You know, I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating for emphasis. People live there and go through the grind of what they do in any city globally. But, uh, um, you know, there is a kind of zeitgeist that has been transferred from generation to generation which is the kind of uh, live fast, get rich quickly attitude. You know what What seems interesting to me in the story you tell is that, uh, in the story you tell in your piece, uh, is that clubbing in, uh, we have we have associated, we tend to associate clubbing uh, with, you know, uh, breaching uh, racial divisions, among uh, others. Yet uh, the, the history of clubbing um, in uh, Johannesburg only rarely achieves that. Uh, would you agree with that? And if so, why does this happen? Um, I would agree. I think partly one of the impulses, and you see it right from the early years of Johannesburg, and it's something that um, predates the kind of um, hardcore project of apartheid that starts in the 1950s, is this idea of spatially segregating people, even if it doesn't have a, a grand name yet like apartheid. Even in the early period of Johannesburg history, black, black laborers um, are settled elsewhere. And um, there's the kind of neurosis of race kind of um, spatially manifest. So the city is very kind of um, atomized, by which I mean that different groupings of people live in different places and pleasure almost follows where you live um, and you know I think one of the, the aspects of the city's history then is how those borders between territories are reinforced and policed so you know what I mean more, more simply you know if in the 60s and 70s you wouldn't see young ethnic whites getting in their car and driving to Soweto to try kind of see what black nightlife is like. And um, the, vice versa, you wouldn't get young black hipsters driving into the apartheid city to kind of dabble because um, there was this sort of like uh, the, let's say, the, the meta project of apartheid and racial segregation before that, which kept people apart. So the history of nightclubbing is very much a kind of a history of segregation and segregated pleasure. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, that, that the scene of Johannesburg is uh, similar to other places in Africa or elsewhere? 
the the nightclubbing scene. Yeah, the nightclub the nightclubbing scene. Look, I think um, <laughs> I've lived in Japan. I've lived in London. When you give a human <laughs> as the biological entity alcohol and loud music. Uh, <laughs> The behaviors are very similar. <laughs> <laughs> the dance patterns might be slightly different, but <laughs> the behaviors uh, generally are the same. The exuberance, um, the kind of, let's say, uh, heterosexual patterns, um, identities that don't uh, prescribe to kind of normative behavior will find outlets. And that's true everywhere. So Johannesburg is the same as elsewhere. But, you know, one of the fascinating things of the project that uh, Florian was one of the kind of uh, instigators of is that the micro histories of cities are so different and the behavioral patterns and why people behave like they do are very much tied into the histories of the city. And in that sense, Johannesburg is completely different to the club history of Luanda or um, even Mozambique, which is a neighboring city. Um, you know, the presentations that I saw and the essays that are written on Lagos and the influence particularly of charismatic religion on popular music there, is, there it's very different in South Africa. We don't have that. So that sort of the, let's say, the overview of the, the church on pleasure is, is far more negligible. So in that sense, Johannesburg is different. What changes in our perception of the history of clubbing if we look into Johannesburg? Because one of the main points of the book uh, is that actually it changes, it attempts to shift the geographies of how we think of the history of clubbing. So uh, what does uh, you know Johannesburg bring next to Detroit and Berlin, for example, in this, in this history? I think one of the things that even surprised me is that I suppose you would find this in every city that there's the aspect or the performance of the international, should we call it. And you see this in, in entertainment, in nightlife, in hospitality. So if one went to uh, a bar region in Osaka in Japan, you would probably have, well, not probably, there are clubs named after places in the U.S. And it's no different in Johannesburg. If one looks at the kind of history of the the bands, the venues, there's very much a gesturing to elsewhere, and particularly, you know, places that are, are capturing the global attention, which in the 20th century would have certainly been um, Europe, London, um, and New York. So you have that sort of aspect, but then you also, it, which is true of any city, but Johannesburg, a kind of um, improvised clubbing that is working around the conditions of state interference. So where people are hosting nightclubs in um, cinemas or in um, concert halls as a way to kind of get around um, some of the apartheid um, dominance. There's also, I think, which is different from clubbing, I would argue and say particularly, let's, for example, the Ukraine in Kiev or in Berlin, is the strong influence of jazz. So it's the kind of long shadow of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, particularly in 
South African. Uh, if I may, if if I may quickly add, what we found interesting while compiling the book is that there's a huge difference always between clubbing in uh, cities that are located in repressive uh, political systems and in others that are more liberal. I mean, that might be a basic uh, something that maybe brings um, Johannesburg during apartheid together with uh, uh, Lisbon under the Salazar regime or you know uh, Kiev before the Maidan revolution or still or in the in, of course in Soviet times so that was is something that you always where you have to establish spaces that kind of escape the official view I mean of course we do the same thing in Berlin um, but it's yeah. more or less known what happens in these clubs and people kind of I mean politic politics or the police um, chose to accept it rather than you know, like bust it uh, like like Johannesburg's clubs where where people try to avoid apartheid laws and black and whites had fun together is that something that might be like be some similarity i think it's a good reading the um i think what i would add to it is that and i'm not sure how true this is in the other cities but the story of nightclubbing in johannesburg is very much tied to the availability and consumption of alcohol mm-hmm. and that might seem a strange statement but i you know i think there's a social historian charles van onslen who's wrote an uh, essay, Randlords and Rutgut, which looks at the very early history of Johannesburg and the uh, kind of dissident alcohol culture. And the reason I mention it is now in the COVID period, the pandemic, alcohol has become a big flashpoint. So it's not only nightclubs and the closure of venues. Um, we've gone through a prohibition um, through a, a lot of 2020 and again now in 2021. And it's, you know, alcohol is very much tied into patterns of, of behavior and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you think that we, we're heading for some point where we, we won't be able to enjoy the pleasure of alcohol? <laughs> well, we can't. It's, uh, you can't buy alcohol anywhere. It's uh, currently prohibited. Um, you can't buy it at uh, off-license the No venues may serve it. It's a it's a complete prohibition. Is it is there a black market for it already? There is. Um, what has happened, for instance, last year is there were a lot of people home brewing. So uh-huh. um, in Cape Town, where I lived, there was an incident where a group of people, um, I think it was about a dozen people, died uh, because of a home brew that people were making out of pineapples. The prices of pineapples went up last year because of <laughs> the prohibition. <laughs> <laughs> wow, no, it's definitely been a strange year. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'd like to ask you this uh, both as a last question because I'm really interested in the main take of the book, uh, which is about you know the the historiographical part, which is also a geographical uh, uh, aspect. I mean, the way that we uh, I'm returning to this question that the way that we think about Detroit or Berlin that we usually talk about clubbing and we always have them as central isn't a direct um, let's say a direct result of the global division of power isn't that what makes us not pay attention to Johannesburg for example or Luanda I, I would say I mean of course it's a it's a complete uh, mirroring of the of the power structures because um, media uh, that are uh, like mostly uh, read and spread in the global north are of course also owned by the global north so people there journalists would tend to select 
to report about scenes and developments and all these things that they think their their readers and listeners and uh, uh, viewers might be interested in. And of course, they would have a blind eye for the global south and and see what's going on there. And 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 the same goes for the for the official music industry. I'm saying official because of course in many African cultures the pirate music industry is such a vital aspect of of di distributing music. Uh, so uh, of course, I mean the the I mean let's take for example the horrible uh, example of, of the so-called world music where people from the global north agreed upon calling everything that is not uh, kind of European influenced and put it all into one basket uh, call it world music and you know, like sometimes select an artist that they might find appropriate to their audiences but I mean the real developments the grassroots developments the interesting developments from the locals they go largely unnoticed so I think of course that is a, that is a complete reflection on that and that's something that we kind of wanted to at least try to counterbalance a bit by uh, having these stories told by from these cities and kind of open or widen the horizon uh, to to readers in the global north. I mean, if, of course, the book or the whole project will have a complete different uh, reception in the in the uh, cities in the global south. I mean, that's a that's a that's a different different perspective. I mean, that's also interesting what what people will make of it there. Sean, what do you think? Yeah, I think what I would, um, just to go back on perhaps a point I raised earlier, but um, in Johannesburg, for instance, if one looks at some of the naming of nightclubs previously, uh, there was a Kilimanjaro, which was named after a very famous uh, nightclub in Washington, D.C. This was in the early 2000s. The decade before when Rave arrived in Johannesburg, there was a nightclub called The Shelter, which was uh, kind of explicitly gesturing to Detroit. But in both instances or both examples, and they are pointing to the United States. Um, what you're seeing increasingly, which I find interesting, is that um, there's a kind of, not that vertical understanding of culture. It's, it's, and um, so for instance, Fela Kuti's uh, Kalakuta Republic, his um, studio, let's say, studio is probably the wrong word, that mythical place, has also now begun to kind of pop up in the naming of sound systems and, um, and sort of these, you know, you see it on flyers. The, the, the idea being that there's been a decentering of um, perception of, of lineages, I guess, and um, I think that's an important thing, but it's a slow process. It's a, that sounds like a really promising and interesting development. So you mean that people in in Johannesburg or in other, maybe also in other African cities, start to look at other African cultures rather than always looking to either New York or the the former colonial center? Is that is that? Did I understand you right? Yeah. Yes. That's exactly Super. what I mean. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah. I, I think it's a very positive development, but it's a slow one, and it sort of happens in. I suppose, parallel to the, the cities um, as a kind of formal entity, always wanting to appear international and either mimic uh, the US or probably increasingly Dubai. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, an, that's an interesting point because, I mean, as, a, as, a, as, a mus as the music nerd I am, I always understand 
artists from African cities that I've heard trying to sound international, but for me as a, as a, as a nerd, that always makes them interchangeable with the original, whereas I was always would always be interested in what I receive as local flavors. And I mean, of course, these people would say, well, these local flavors are not so interesting. I want to be internationally successful, though I have to apply to these standards and try, yeah. try to and it's, it's it's this is like a this, this is like a contradictory dynamic there and i can completely understand both sides i'd say mm-hmm. yeah. I, you know, I, Janice, if I could add one thing yeah, I, yeah, sure. I, if one looks at a lot of the presentations or the essays um for instance like bristol and um in portugal a lot of the club culture is energized as it was in london in the 70s and 80s by racial mixing. And I think that is probably the story of post-apartheid uh, Johannesburg, is um, the kind of meeting points rather than the places where set identities go to kind of like um, hide from contact. So we're still, we still sort of making progress, Johannesburg is at least, but it's, it's slow. And it's interesting that when one looks not to the, the main centers, but to, let's say, regional places where you realize some of the same difficulties, but also um, the possibilities and what the outcomes are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Super. So, yeah, unfortunately, we've run out of time. So, at this point, uh, Florian Sievers and Sono Tool, thank you for joining us at the Archipelago. Thank you for having me. Yeah, same here. Thanks, thanks a lot for the opportunity. <laughs>